Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za I'm not sure how true this story is as I found it and read it, but it illustrates the point. The resurrection is the main reason for Christian joy. Think with me for a moment. We celebrate, do we not, at weddings. We, are, we, we shout for joy and, and clap. We just clap for, uh, for the steens uh, that we celebrated with uh, two weeks ago. We celebrate when, when we get that job that we were looking for or when perhaps our business is going well, when the things that we have worked for, we worked for, we receive. We celebrate when those in our lives are celebrating, when, they're feel, when, they're, when things that they are working towards or when things that they've been praying for, the Lord gives it to them. We clap and we praise God, praise the Lord. But as you will see this morning, the resurrection is the cornerstone event by which all of our joy should be centered. Because of what God did in raising his son, we ought to praise him forevermore. We should celebrate in all these other things indeed, but much more when it comes to this particular event. So you will forgive me this morning, church, if I sound a little charismatic, yeah? <laughs> forgive me. That is because this text forces me to. The text in front of us expresses elation, delight, future hope, and loud screeching joy. This is a text of celebration, one of which we as God's people we will do well to allow to affect our affections. The first thing we're confronted with in our text, in verse 22 of our text, is the resurrection. Look at verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. A few things will strike us from, from this text, but the main thing should strike us first. This person who is speaking is alive. This, per this person who is speaking is making plans for the future. He's saying what he will do in the future. Now, why is, this, why is this something that's worth noting? Well, because you and I were together in this text from verse 1 to 21 on Friday. And what did we see in verses 1 to 21? In verses 1 to 21, we saw this very same man, this very same uh, psalmist, as he's saying here, his bones were out of joint. He was surrounded by dogs and lions. The man in verses 1 to 21 of our psalm was abandoned and he was crying out at the injustice of the abandonment that he was feeling. But all of a Sunday, here in verse 22, he is praising God in the midst of the congregation. There has been a shift, a switch. Something has happened between verse 21 and verse 22. What's happening? How can we understand this? Well, this is an important principle in understanding Old Testament prophecy. 
At many times, prophets see things that are far apart and they see them all squished together. They have a lens which, see, which makes them see events that could be hours, days, even centuries apart, but sometimes they just see those events in the next line. They just say it in the next line as if it immediately happened. But what is not spoken is that there's been a number of other things that have happened in between. There is a world of difference between verse 21 and verse 22. The things that have happened and occurred between verse 21 and 22 should bring joy to Christians everywhere. In verse 21, he was crying out to be relieved by the Lord from his distresses at the time. And he was not, he was not relieved. You and I read on Friday, he died. The father abandoned him and he tasted separation from his God for the first time in eternity. He was entirely and completely alone and that darkness, the wrath of God, completely consumed him. Verse 21, his situation was not something you would want. But here in verse 22, show, verse 22 shows us a man who is happy praising God. For us to understand this in its proper context, I want to use a, a, a psalm earlier on to help us understand what is going on here. Hold your place in Psalm 22 and come with me to Psalm 16. As we are trying to understand how the prophets understood the resurrection, there is something important for us to understand in Psalm 16 verses 9 and 10. These verses, verses 9 and 10 of Psalm 16, are quoted by Peter and the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. And we see in them something remarkable. That the Messiah had confidence in his resurrection. And not just a general resurrection that belongs to all, that some, everybody will be raised, but a specific time-bound resurrection of him as God's Holy One. Look at verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. Why? Why, does my, my heart, why is my heart glad? Why, is my whole, why does my whole entire being rejoice, and my flesh dwells secure? Verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Two things we see in these two verses. First, the joy of the Messiah, and second, the reason for the Messiah's joy. The Messiah's joy is explained in verse 9. He is glad, entirely in his heart. He is full of gladness. His whole being rejoices. I don't know if you understand what this means. When your whole being rests in joy and security. When would this happen in certain days in our lives, perhaps? When, I imagine, when, uh, when, uh, when Londi said yes to Ishmael's proposal, I imagine that it wasn't just Ishmael's head that was happy. I imagine that his whole being was rejoicing. Yes, the one whom I love is going to be my bride. I imagine there, there are those moments in life, certain moments, certain high moments in life, when, when we feel an entire, a, a complete rejoicing and complete gladness. And what is it that causes the Messiah to be like this? 
It is because he knows for a fact that even though he will taste death, his body will not be corrupted. Even though he will taste death, his body will not decay. Even though he will go down to Sheol, he will not be abandoned to Sheol, to the grave, to the place of the dead. He had already spoken in verses 7 and 8 of how he has set the Lord before him. He speaks in verse 8 of having set the Lord before him and having fellowship with the Lord. And in light of that, he dwells secure because the Lord will treat him righteously. He knows what it is that he deserves. His righteousness demands, requires that he is treated righteously. And he is convinced because of his righteousness, because he has always walked with the Lord, the Lord is not going to abandon him. And here the Messiah is assured that, he, that while he will taste death, his righteousness as the Holy One of God will be vindicated. These words in verse 10 have a clear meaning. His body will not be corrupted. It will not go the way of the dead. Decomposition will not take over his body. His body will not die entirely, be completely just to the ground and become a, be eaten by worms and become not, a nothingness, a byword, somebody whom we remember. No, while he will die, while he will taste death, his body, something will happen very quickly such that his body does not decay. But he does not say that. Also, he also says that you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. When he says you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, he's saying that you will not leave me in the place of the dead. I will not become like one of the normal people who just die and are dead and they're forgotten. The book of Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon, speaks of how the dead have no part on what's happening on earth. Yeah? How the dead are useless when it comes to things that are under the sun. They have no part in it. They are just a, they are just a memory. Much more than that, the dead have no pleasure, no joy, nothing. They can't feel, they can't express. They're dead, they're gone. We honor them, but they only live in memory. But here the Messiah is sure that that is not his fate. Yes, men die. Men die and are forgotten. Men die and their lives prove to be nothing on earth. Men die and 2,000 years later, nobody remembers their name. But let me tell you, I am sitting secure and dwelling comfortably knowing that my life will not be like that. That is what the Messiah is saying. The impact of his life will not go the way of normal, sinful men. Why? Because he is righteous, he has set the Lord before him, and the Lord will honor him for that. If you are here on Friday, you'll remember that we wrestled along with the Messiah at the ill treatment he was receiving from God from verses 1 to 21. You remember that? He was saying that, uh, that he, he was crying out, Why have you forsaken me? I have lived with you. I have trusted in you my whole life from the womb, he said. He said from the moment, not just even after I was born, but from the womb, I, I was nurtured by you, cared for by you, taught how to walk by you. I've never known a moment without you. But here in the, in the presence of these evil men, you've abandoned me. 
In Psalm 22, he was crying out in the moment of his, of his weakness, in the, mom, in the moment where he was alone and feeling, seeing the wrath of God coming on top of him, sweating droplets of blood. Why have you forsaken me? But here in Psalm 16, he sounds different. Do you see the difference? In Psalm 16, he sounds different. He is assured he is convinced that because of his righteousness, because he has set the Lord before him, because he has walked with God, his death will not be final. And that, in Psalm 16, causes him to rejoice. In Psalm 22, the verses we considered, there was no joy, there was no dwelling secure, there was no whole being rejoicing. So what is the reason for this discrepancy? Well, in verses 1 to 21 of Psalm 22, you hear the Messiah as he experiences pain at his death, as he drinks the cup, the dreaded cup, that God did not take away. And in Psalm 16, we hear the Messiah at another time as he is prophetically assured that his death is not final. We see both of these things very clearly in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ as he walks on earth. The Lord Jesus, as he was ministering, he predicted many times, over three times, he predicted that he's going to suffer, he's going to die, he's going to bury, he's going to be buried, the evil men are going to surround him, but on the third day he will rise again. Do you remember this? Time and time again, he was predicting it to such a point where Peter even said, no, no such thing shall happen to you. And he rebuked him and said, get behind me, this is going to happen, but I will live at the end of it. But here in Psalm 22, but, but on that, not, sorry, not in Psalm 22, but as we saw on Friday, on the week leading up to his death, we saw a sorrowful Jesus. We saw a weeping Jesus. We saw that. We saw a, weep, a Jesus who, when the cup was in front of him, he was asking for it to be removed. And he went back three times asking for the cup of God's wrath to be removed. And he was asking on the cross, why have you forsaken me? So what does this tell us? This tells us at least one thing, just as an aside. That in the Psalms, in the prophets, we see not just a fulfillment of the facts of Jesus' death and resurrection, but also, remarkably, we see a fulfillment of his emotional life. The Psalms and the prophets talk not just about the facts of Christ, but they talk about the emotional life of Christ. This entire scripture, as Jesus was showing his disciples after his resurrection in Luke 24, this entire scripture in the Old Testament is talking entirely, completely about him. But a healthy understanding of Psalm 16 gives us clarity on why here in Psalm, in, in Psalm 22, verse 22, we see a man so alive and praising God and rejoicing. While his prayer in verse 21 to be rescued by God from those who surround him was not immediately answered, yet God remained faithful to his Holy One by vindicating him and ensuring that his body will not be corrupted. And we see first here then the primary meaning of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was a vindication of his status as the king from God. Because, as the language suggests in Psalm 16, he is the unique holy one of God. 
You see, an accusation could be, here you are. You remember, even as we read on Friday, they are mocking him. He trusts the Lord. Let him hope in him. Let the Lord rescue him from the cross. And everybody is looking at him on the cross dying, and they're saying, well, how is this the king that was foretold who's going to rule the entire world? But when Jesus Christ rises again from the dead, he is vindicated. He is, it is proven to be true that what he was saying about himself is true. What the prophets said about him is true. What the disciples have been saying about him is all true. He is indeed the king that people ought to be hoping him, hoping in. But there is a, a bit more to this that the, the prophets speak about. In, in Isaiah 53, which we also discussed on Friday, we saw, we saw some verses and then we stopped. And I'm just going to read for you from verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. There are a lot of things that are unclear in the world. There are a lot of, it's hard to know these days which news sites to trust, which certain things to believe in, who, which, whose, whose science should I be listening to. There are so many conflicting things happening on the world. Let me listen to this. This person is saying the other thing, and this person is saying the other thing. It's hard to know what exactly is it that I can bank or that I can trust and live in light of. But let me tell you something. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has made one thing, one fact crystal clear. Jesus Christ is in fact the king who will rule the world. Jesus Christ, don't look no further. Don't look anywhere else. If you want the everlasting king who will rule forever, the one king that you need to make sure that everything between you and him is right, look no further than Jesus Christ. Why? Because he rose from the dead. Because God vindicated him as the king. Don't look for other kings. Don't look for other leaders. Don't look for others who will tell you how to live life. Go to this king. Because his resurrection proves that he is the king from God. Those who trust in him will have multiple blessings. Which we'll talk about in a moment as we go through Psalm 22. But conversely I want to make something very clear also. Let this be clear to anyone else who trusts in people who are dead. What you are doing is a waste of time. If you trust in men who are dead, you are wasting your life. If you're trusting in people who are powerless, who cannot give life, you are wasting your time. I'm not just talking about ancestral worship here. That's definitely one thing. If you trust in, if you go and consult the ancestors because you, you think that they'll give you something, you're wasting time. The ancestors are, have been judged and they're gonna, they are waiting their own judgment. God has already said what he said about them and it's over and there's going to come a day when they're judged. They're, it's between them and God. They have nothing to do with you. But if you're trusting in dead men who tell you to not trust in Christ, you're trusting in Nietzsche, who has the audacity to tell you that God is dead, while he's the one who's dead. You're trusting in the, in the intelligentsia of the world, the ones who die like any man, who, whose, whose words and philosophies do not conquer death, whose 
words and philosophies and thought processes don't change anything that matters. All their achievements they made, they made massive achievements, massive achievements, then they die and it's over. Why would you trust in a man like that? Why would you trust in dead men and in their philosophies when they're dead? Why would you trust in a religious leader who is dead? He's dead. I mean, this is the whole point of religion. The whole point of religion is life, living. The whole point of religion is that is that is is God and, and going to God and, and connecting with Him. Why would you trust in someone whose body decomposed? If you're trusting in Muhammad, you're wasting your time. If you're trusting in Joseph Smith, you're wasting your time. If you're trusting in Lekhanyani, you are wasting your time. Jesus Christ is the only one who's alive. Trust in him, the king who was vindicated by God as the king of all the universe. Now come back with me for a moment. Come back with me to Psalm 22. And I want to show you a number of things there very quickly before we end. I know you want to go to the hot cross buns. And there's probably lamb roast, at least in G's house. <laughs> probably with red wine as well. Uh, but I want to show you these. There are five things I want to show you that are a reality as a result of the resurrection in Psalm 22. In, in verses 1 to 21, it was his struggle and cry abandoned on the cross. And in verse 22, he's resurrected and there are things that happen when he is alive. The five things we'll see is first, we see that the Messiah now has a congregation. Second, we will see that the, that, that congregation glorifying God in the Messiah. Third, we see that congregation blessed like the Messiah. Fourth, we will see that, congreg that that congregation extends to the ends of the earth. And finally, we will see that that congregation will endure forever. Firstly, now to our first point here in verse 22, the Messiah has now a congregation. Look at verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear him, praise him. Verse 25. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. Later on, all the ends of the earth, the families of the earth. What has happened? Notice the change. In verses 1 to 21, who was with him? In verses 1 to 21, who was, with, who was surrounding him? The evil man. Who was on his side in verses 1 to 21? No one. He was alone. And from verse 22 onwards, there's now people. There's now a congregation. And there's, there's, there's people all over. It just seems like all of a sudden now, there's, there's, a, there's a swarms of people. There's the congregation that he praises him in, and it extends to the ends of the earth, and there's the all the families of the earth. All of a sudden, this man who was alone, abandoned, is now singing and praising among the people. What happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened. The Messiah's death and resurrection was effectual. It achieved something. This suggests that it was effectual that he did not die in vain, and he did not rise in vain. 
what it is that he was doing when he was dying and rising is got something out of it. it this was not a Ponzi scheme, a plan between him and God. Hey, let's see if I, if I die, you know, perhaps I might, you know, I might have brothers, I might have joy, I might have a people, a bride to me. Let's see if it will happen perhaps. Let's, let, let's go with this plan and see if something will come out of it. No, that's not what this is. This was a sure thing. The congregation comes from the reality that his death and resurrection was effectual. Firstly, his death. His death justified many. His death spilled over to many. Come with me for a moment to Isaiah 53 and see this for yourself. Isaiah 53 from verse 12. Out of the anguish, sorry, verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. How? His, the anguish of his soul will produce something he will see and be satisfied. Be satisfied by what? By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. His death achieved something. His death bore the iniquity, the sin, the filth of many of the people of God. Who bears your sins? Perhaps you're here this morning and you're unaware that you have sin, though I doubt that. I doubt that anyone is in here really unaware that they have done evil things. I doubt that anyone here really thinks of themselves as pure. I doubt that anyone here, when you complain about other people's wrong, you never just a little bit feel your own hypocrisy in pointing at other people's wrongs. I doubt that anyone here, if I sat down with you, you would say to me that you have never transgressed the law of God. If you believe that, if you entirely believe that you are fine before God, that there's no problem between you and God, then you and God are just chums. You are, you are deceived, the scripture says. From the day you were born and from the day you were at least, you were, you were alert and awake. You have consistently and constantly offended God. You have consistently and constantly poked at him. God's, God's law says walk this way and you say, no, 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 I'll go this way. God says desire this and you say, no, 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 I'm going to desire this. God says, don't think like that about your friend. Don't think like that about your family members. Don't think like that about your colleagues. And all you can do is think like that. See, we all have sin, iniquity, and somebody needs to bear it. If God is to be a righteous judge, he cannot let us go scot-free. God cannot, as a righteous, holy judge, say, it is fine, you have sinned, but hey, man... It's a, it's, a, you know, it's a Sunday morning. It's okay. Everything's good. You wouldn't accept that. 
Somebody stole from you, if somebody killed your loved one, and then the judge at the court says, oh, it's fine, I'm feeling generous today. Ah, I'm a good, I'm a, you know, I'm a good judge. I'm a forgiving judge. So yeah, this crime is not a problem. You, you wouldn't love that judge, wouldn't you? Why do you think God will do that with you? Why do you think that the God who knows what you did today, this morning, the God knows what you thought yesterday, the God who knows the meditations of your heart over the past week, how can he just act as if everything is fine? Somebody has to pay for it. It's either you or this man. And the good news of the resurrection is that many, it's not to a few, yeah? It's not to those who perhaps have a good background. It's not to those perhaps who've had a good life or a hard life. It's not only to those who perhaps have never, who've, who've really just never had a lot to deal with or those who've had a lot to deal with. This is cuts to, every, to everyone. This many counts every kind of person you can imagine. You can also be counted if you repent of your sins and believe in him. But it also says this, this praising, this, the, the, the fact that there's this massive congregation around him says something else about the Messiah. It suggests his generosity. Look at verses 22 and 23. Who are the specific people that he is talking about there? The, pe the people who are called by name. It's the offspring of Jacob. Do you see that? It is the offspring of Israel. But now let me ask you this. Who is killing him? Who has just, kill who has just killed him? Who is it that delivered him to evil men to be killed? Who is it that when they were asked by Pilate, they said, we have no king but Caesar? Who is it that rejected him, though he was, give, though he was giving himself to them? It's the children of Israel. And yet here, when he speaks of the joy of the praising that will happen as he rises and lives, the first people he speaks of are the children of Israel. And you and I have seen in the book of Acts, if you've been with us, you've seen in the book of Acts how thousands of them were saved on a daily basis. 3,000 first, and then later we're told 5,000, and then more being added day by day. The very same people who delivered him up to be killed. Do you remember the story of Joseph? When Joseph, because his brothers were, were jealous of him, and then they, they wanted to kill him. You remember that story? And then they decided on selling him to slavery. And then he lived a hard life because of what they saw, because of their selling of him. Lived a hard life in Egypt. Uh, was prisoned wrongfully. So much horrible. And then the Lord turned his fortunes. And the Lord raised him up. And he became the, the vice regent of, of Egypt. And then his brothers come later on, now that there's a famine, they don't have food, they're weak, they don't have anything, they, they're, they're, they're struggling to feed their family, their father can't walk, everything. life is, is horrible and hard for, the, for his brothers. And then they come to him, they come to Joseph, they can't recognize it's him. He tells them later on, he tells them, it's me. And then he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. 
That's what's happening here. The, 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 the children of Israel, we're told, we, we, we've seen this in the book of Acts. They, they killed, they, they, gave, they rejected their Messiah, and they gave him up to be killed by evil men. But what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Such that even them, because they have nothing in their hands to bring, they have nothing to bring before God in terms of righteousness. They need the righteousness of another. And Christ says, I will sing and praise God in the midst of them. Do you see the generosity of the Messiah? If you were, were hurt and killed by people, and now you have come into your glory, you'd be tempted to be like, ah, guys, let's see who else I can give this, these blessings and spoil to. But not, not Christ. He welcomes, us in, he welcomes them in. And he, t- and he praises God. He tells, he tells of the name of the Lord to his brothers. He calls them brothers. And he tells them to come and praise the Lord. Well, that's the first thing we see, that there is now a congregation. Second, this congregation is told to, fear, to praise God. Verse 23, You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him. All you offspring of Israel, for He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and He has not hidden His face from Him, but has heard when He cried to Him. I want you to notice first the reason for the praise. So the Messiah comes to his brothers and tells them, praise God. Why? What's the reason? Look, it's in verse 24. It is because God did not despise this very same one whom he had hidden his face from. He says here, he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He's talking about himself. I'm the one who, when I was crying out, the Lord forsook me. I'm the one, when I was crying out, the Lord afflicted me himself. He hid his face from me. But in the final word, he actually has heard my cry. The, 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 the abandonment that Christ had was temporary, not permanent. Christ was abandoned by the Father, but for a few, a four, but for a moment, it was not forever. He did at the end honor him. He did at the end hear him and hear his cries. And because his death was not permanent, because his body did not see corruption, therefore the congregation is told to praise God. I want you to consider the meaning of this. If Jesus Christ had remained dead, there would be no hope for anyone anywhere. If Christ had remained dead, then that was it. Everyone is going to die in their sins. There would be no hope for fellowship with God. No hope for sins forgiven. No hope of prayers answered. No hope that the suffering and struggle that we're feeling today will sometime end. Everything that we hope for, everything that we have, everything that we sing about, everything that is that brings us coming back again to the Lord's day to worship hinges on the reality that Christ was resurrected. That God did not leave him dead, but he raised him up. Therefore, we, as the congregation, we ought to respond well to that. And he tells us how to respond. He says, all you who fear the Lord, praise him. 
glorify Him, stand in awe of Him. The Hebrew word used for praise here literally means to shine forth as a light. It means to make a show of something, make, make a boast about something, make an elaborate show to, to make this thing seen. It also means to, to make clear, to celebrate. This is not praising the Lord like this, Oh Lord, you saved me and you rose again from the dead. This, what, what he's saying here is it's loud, it's praise him. It's, it's a shout, praise him, make much of his name, make much of what he has done. Say to him all of his attributes. Proclaim his excellencies among the people. Describe him, think on him, make much of, make a show of him. Go around displaying his glory because of what he has done. And what is it that he has done? He did not let the afflicted one remain afflicted. He raised him up. Though he turned his face from him, it was not forever. Though he forsook him, it was not forever. The Messiah rose again. When it says, when the word that is used to glorify him means to honor him, to show him as weighty, as, as heavy as he really is. When it says to stand in awe, it's really, it literally means to gaze at him. Consider him. Stand in awe. Be amazed at his excellence. Look at him and think. Behold the glory of the God who would not let his righteous one remain dead. There is something to be said here about studying God. Something to be said here about thinking on God. Giving time to think on the what are the attributes of God that would lead to him bringing Christ to be dead and then raising him up? What is God like? Stand before him and be in awe. There is, there is a Christian life because of what God has done that shows the heaviness of God. There is a, a, uh, a, a court judge who at one point near the end of his life, he was asked, uh, what else could you have done? You, you, you were a judge for the rest of you. were a judge. You chose to be a judge. What else could you have done with your life? Is there another career perhaps that would have worked for you? And this judge said this, well, I might have entered the Christian ministry if certain pastors I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. Cold, low, sad, everything is just about gloomy face, as if everything in Christianity is about death. No, it is about a death, but it's also about a resurrection. It's about a death that, that, was, that was then swallowed up in the resurrection. The resurrection is the hope. If Christ just died and stayed dead, then of course we are all just undertakers. But if Christ rose again, we are those who proclaim praise. And notice also in verse 25, it's not just the congregation that praises, that is told to praise God, but also he himself, the Messiah, praises God. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The Messiah says, the praise that I am giving to you comes from you. 
John III Sobieski, who was the king of Poland in the late 17th century, is best remembered as a man who saved Central Europe from the invading armies of the Turks in 1683. When the, with, with the Turks at the walls of Vienna, Sobieski led a charge that broke the siege. His rescue of Vienna is considered, is considered one of the decisive battles, one of the most decisive battles in European history. In announcing his great victory, Sobieski paraphrased the famous words of Caesar by saying simply, I came, I saw God conquered. See, Caesar had said, I came, I saw, I conquered. But Sobieski says, I came, I saw God conquered. The Christ, the Messiah here is doing the same. The God, God has done this. He has brought me this reason to give praise. He has brought me this reason to give praise. He is the one who has won the, the, the ultimate victory. The Messiah praises God for keeping his word and he praises him in the midst of the congregation. Thirdly, the congregation will be blessed like the Messiah is blessed. Look at verse 26. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. The Messiah here calls God's people as the afflicted. Why? Why would he call God's people as the afflicted? He's the one who was afflicted. Why is he now calling God's people as the afflicted? By the way, in English, you might not see this because it, it could be both plural and singular, but in the, in the Hebrew, it's actually plural. So he's not talking, when he says the afflicted here, it's not the same as when he was talking about the afflicted in a few verses earlier. Here he's talking about the afflicted, the general, the others who are afflicted, not just talking about himself. But why does he call God's people those who are afflicted? Well, because Jesus, as Jesus himself said in his ministry, that in the world you will have trouble. Remember this, while all the, all the people in the world generally have trouble, God considers especially his people and their troubles. For his people, he makes their troubles work for their sanctification. He calls us often to be joyful in trial because trial for us now works something that is useful, something that is effectual. But the point here is this, the afflicted of God will now eat and be satisfied just like how Christ is eating and is satisfied. Christ's resurrection is the first fruits. Christ had many troubles and died a horrific death, but his resurrection is the means by which we have confidence that while we ourselves go through many troubles, we will also live like him. If we see Christ praising God, then we know that we will also praise God. See, that's really what Christians are. Christians are just like one of those, you know, those little miniature small dogs that always mimic whatever is being done in front of them. When Christ suffers, we suffer with him. When Christ is mocked, we are also mocked. When Christ lives a perfect life of sinlessness, Scripture tells us that when he appears, we will also live a life of, sin, of sinless perfection. When Christ reigns over the universe, Scripture tells us that we will also reign with him. 
The destiny of the church is inseparable from Christ. What he does, we do. It's not, it's, it, whatever he does, we go through it. We are united with him in a mysterious way. And so just like he is now eating and rejoicing, we will also eat and rejoice. We have the same blessings. Fourthly, the congregation now extends to the nations. Look at verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. In times past, the nations have forgotten God. The history of humankind can be summarized as the history of a people who have turned away from their maker. From Genesis until now, the world has only be, ever been full of rebellious people. But look at this. The resurrection of Christ reverses this. The resurrection of Christ deals a serious blow to this. Now we're told that the ends of the earth shall remember. And what is it that the ends of the earth forgot? They forgot the goodness of God. They've only now just enjoyed the sweetness of sin. The ends of the earth only know idolatry, fighting, sensuality, self-centeredness, greed. That's all the ends of the earth know. That's all they are acquainted with. Even while the, the peoples of the world sometimes do display good attributes like kindness and, and courage and generosity, they do it not from a place of knowing and fearing their maker, but rather from a place of misplaced worship. And here we are told that all of that will change. When you read the verses here, you get the idea that the doors will crack. There will be swarms of people coming in to worship the true Lord. The dam, the dam wall will not be able to hold the, the sheer amount of people coming in from all over the world to worship the one and true God. And what this means is that those people, all of those people who come to worship the true and one Lord, all of those people have repented of their ways. They have repented of their idolatry, of their sin, of their sensuality of the sins that held them captive. They've repented of them and they've laid that aside and now they've come to worship the true God and to live in accordance with his law. And this is again a question I will challenge you with. If you're in here this morning, rejoice if you have repented. If you're in here this morning, rejoice if you are counted among this number of people that have remembered and come back to their senses to worship the true and one Lord. But if you are in here and you are one of those who have not repented of the sin of unbelief, if you are one of those who are knowing these things over there, but you are not walking in them, you're not coming to worship the true Lord, you, all that will be left to you is judgment. You have to repent of the sin of forgetting God. God made you. And you've forgotten him. Repent of it. Turn. Come to the one who rose again. And, and worship the one true Lord. The maker of the heavens and earth. And if you repent. There will be a song of praise given to you in your lips. If you repent. You will have life. 
and life everlasting. Finally, as we close, this congregation will endure forever. Look at verse 30. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he indeed has done it. Here the prophet is using a, 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 a device of, of children and further generations to explain this reality, a picture, this reality that this kingdom will endure forever. That this kingdom, this king who will always be praised and honored, that will continue from generation to generation and generation. This does not necessarily mean that there will be, there'll be children born in, in eternity, being born and then that's not, necessarily, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is just generation after generation, it will keep on continuing forever as a cycle. This king will be, will be praised and those who praise him will continue to have a reason to praise him. And if they continue to have a reason to praise him, it means that his kingdom is not thwarted. Nobody continues to praise a king who's defeated. Nobody continues to praise a king whose promises have not come to fruition. People continue to praise a king when all that he has promised is continuing. And that's what's going on here. People will continue to proclaim his righteousness, proclaim his works, because he has raised the Messiah from the dead. So what is, I asked you a question at the beginning, what is the appropriate response to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? If you are not a believer in Christ, the appropriate response is to repent of your sins and believe. If you are a believer in Christ, the appropriate response is to rejoice and praise Him and make much of Him forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. You have given us a song, Lord, a song by which to praise you, a song that is full of all your excellencies. May this song never depart from our lips. While the floods are happening and, and hardships are going on and economy and all of these things are happening that really hard press us and we feel pressed, we feel our, jo our joy sapped, if our joy perhaps was in a container, sometimes we feel that the container is pressed and there is a hole and juice is leaking. But Lord, we ask that in your mercy and grace you would remind us of these truths over and over again. That because your son rose from the dead, our lives are secure. Our flesh should dwell secure and rejoicing forever. Because his resurrection means that we ourselves will have the same blessings. We will live with him, and though our troubles last for a while, they will not last forever. In Christ's name we pray all of these things. Amen.